0: Unremitting Lament, written by a man named Heman the Ezraite, Psalm 88 pours out the heart of one who feels utterly submerged in the misery of life, having been betrayed by the treacherous, seeing no light whatsoever. But it's fascinating that the next psalm, written by Ethan the Ezraite, who was Heman's brother, begins by proclaiming the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of our God. Almost as though he was answering his brother and saying, but despite your circumstances, despite the people around you, look at God, look how faithful he is. And and Ethan has every reason for lament as well. Because as we go through this psalm, we're going to see that he recalls the covenant promises God gave to his people. And how he would put David on the throne. And he would lead his people by a godly king. But left unspoken is that other side of the covenant. If you reject me. If your sons turn away from me. Then my wrath will be poured out. And that seems to be what's happening. Because he too expresses a lament. Because it seems as though God has turned away. It seems as though he's removed his blessing. But remembering the steadfast love of the Lord, remembering how faithful and merciful is our God, Ethan leads God's people in praying on the basis of God's promises for his help. And that's a prayer that God answered by sending his son, the perfect descendant of David, who led God's people with utter and complete righteousness, who removed the penalty for our sin, who reconciles us, with utter and complete perfection. So this is a psalm that that leads us through that path of lament and shows us how Christ answers. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you created them. Tabor and Herman joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea, and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David." His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and and you have not made him stand in battle. You've made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is for what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of shale? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? By which by your faithfulness you swore to David. Remember, O oh Lord, how your servants are mocked And how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations. With which your enemies mock, O Lord. With which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and Amen. Beloved, in this again we see the lament of God's people as they live in a broken world. And as they receive the consequence for disobedience. But we don't. Cast off hope. Instead, we remember God's covenant promises. We remember His steadfast love. And we look to Christ, who fulfilled that covenant with David, and who restores His people time and time and time again. So let's take up a portion of this psalm. Number 169, we're going to sing stanzas 1 and 2, then 7 and 9. And this is taken from the first section of the psalm, verses 1 through 12. We'll sing stanzas 1 and 2, 7, 8, and 9. Let us together seek the Lord in believing prayer. O Lord our Heavenly Father, you are indeed the merciful and steadfast one. Your faithfulness is higher than the heavens, your love broader than the plains. Lord, you know, you know the struggles and the brokenness with which your people so often deal. The sickness that we face, the disappointments and struggles that we endure. The sin that we often feel as though we cannot shake. The persecution of an unbelieving world. Especially in portions of this world where unbelief reigns as the chief worldview. And where your church is constantly slandered and beaten and oppressed. But Father, we know that you are the great King of kings and Lord of lords. That nothing is able to occur in this world apart from your will. And that you are able to turn every bit of it for the good of your people. Father, we thank you and we rejoice in the knowledge of your sovereign care. And we pray that you would help us to trust in you. Turning at every moment of weakness, every moment of suffering... Unto you, trusting in your faithful promises, remembering that Jesus has accomplished our salvation and that he now sits enthroned above, possessing all power and authority over every person and nation and king and power. Help us to look to him, Lord, believing that he will turn all things for our good And longing for that day when He comes back to make all things new. And to cause all men to stand before Him. Until that day, cause your church to stand firm, Lord. Daily remembering the glorious future that is ours. Cultivating within us a longing for the renewal of heaven and earth and all things. And a perfecting of your saints when Jesus does return. Lord, we pray that you would cause your church to be faithful in this sinful world. Enable us to rightly understand and apply your word. To boldly and lovingly proclaim that word to a watching world. And to call our neighbors, both small and great, both powerful and weak, to submit themselves to you as the only source of hope and life, proclaiming with boldness that unless they turn to you, they have no hope. Unless they turn to you, their end is horrific. But if they turn to you, they will find grace and peace and life eternal. Father we pray for this land in which we live a land once devoted to you a land where once your word was proclaimed openly and boldly by not just preachers and elders but but leaders of the land within the state houses and the federal buildings and yet today so many have rejected you so many have turned aside from the truth so many have devoted themselves to sin and rebellion. Lord, we grieve. We grieve even as we look upon the people of this land and we see the the misery and the darkness and the despair which grips so many. We pray, Father, that You would send Your Spirit with great power to turn back the hearts of our people from from their rebellion and their wickedness. We pray that You would Cause them to see their weakness in the face of temptation and in the face of Satan's snares. And we pray that you would cause them to have ears opened and hearts softened to receive the word of truth, the word of life that you have entrusted to us. Lord, we pray that you would bless the leaders of our land with humility and with wisdom And with godliness, we pray for President Biden and Vice President Harris and their cabinet. For Governor Whitmer and her cabinet as well. We pray that you would cause these to recognize that they are mere servants before you. And that they are called to use the authority they've been entrusted with. In order to preserve your church. To advance your kingdom. And to promote what is true and what is just according to your good word. We pray for our senators and representatives in Washington. That you would cause them to care not for the praise or the power of men. But only for the opportunity to serve according to your purposes. And according to your will, we pray for our senators, and representatives in Lansing. That you would humble them and make them to see that the authority that they exercise is not theirs and it is not the people's, but it is yours. Entrusted to them for an important task. That they might restrain evil and that they might promote that which is good, foremost of which being your truth your church. We pray for the judges and the courts from the lowliest of our magistrates to our nation's supreme court. We ask that you would give them wisdom. That you would guide them through their conscience. That they might seek to judge justly according to the law as written and not to legislate from the bench as those being unfaithful to the vows that they have taken. We pray that you would give them boldness and courage to do what is right and what is just and to reject that which is wicked and which is wrong. We think especially of the great sin of our nation of abortion as our Supreme Court prepares to hand down a verdict concerning that sin. Give them the boldness And the faithfulness to openly profess what every heart knows. That it's wicked to murder an infant in the womb. And that it's unjustifiable to defend that act with law. Lord, we pray that you would bless our armed forces and our police. As they seek to apply the law. As they seek to face to face apply justice. Restrain evil. And protect those who do well. And Father we pray that throughout this land. You might send your spirit with great power to enact. A a new transformation of this land. That you would cause many to bow the knee before you. Acknowledging that not government and not society. And not the internet or the influencers. But Christ alone can give hope and meaning and joy and life. And Lord, we pray that you would make us, your church, to be an example of humility, an example of faith, an example of joy that comes only through submitting to Christ as our true king and following after his ways. Lord, grant that we might demonstrate and proclaim that truth to the children you bring among us this week through VBS. Enable us to show them the love of Christ, to teach them the word of our God, and to show them the difference that our Savior makes. We pray, Father, that you would watch over our people in all of their needs. For those who wrestle with sin or doubt or unbelief, Lord, restore them, strengthen them, and hold them firm. For those who are dealing with physical ailments of various sorts, we pray that you would provide the healing and the strength that they need, that we might see that the healing has come from you. For those who are facing great difficulties, we ask that you would provide the strength and the guidance that they crave. Father, we pray in particular for Case's brother Bill, that you would provide the healing and the strength that he needs as he recovers from his stroke. We pray for John's grandson, Barrett, as he continues recovering from open heart surgery, and and day by day experiences your sustaining grace, we pray for Jane's sister Caroline with the cancer that she's facing, and and Joby Lammers with her pancreatic cancer, and and Daniel Bruker, Linda's father, as he deals with his health struggles, and others of our loved ones and our family, and Lord, we pray especially for our fellow members who are struggling, for Bruce and for Linda and for others, Lord, we ask that you would provide as only you are able, that you would give each one the healing and the strength and the encouragement that they need. And now as we prepare to look to your word, Lord, use it to enlighten us, to strengthen us, to equip us and to embolden us, that we might instruct our neighbor, that we might live before a watching world with integrity faith, and that we might have confidence in knowing who you are and what you are like and how you are at work in the world around us. Now, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we prepare to do that, to look to God's word, uh, let's sing from the end of Psalm 189 or toward the end. Number 171 actually starts at verse 19 of Psalm 89, continues through the end, verse 52. We're going to sing uh, stanzas one through four, and then the last stanza, number eight, one through four and eight and 171. This evening we look to what our confession says concerning the civil government. We're going to look at half of what we confess there uh, concerning the nature of the government itself. But before we do that, I'd like to read with you two very brief passages that shed some light on how we should regard, how we should understand the magistrate, the civil governor whom God sets over us. And this holds just as true whether that Magistrate is a king who holds all power, or a constitutional republic, the likes of which we have, where power is distributed among three forms or three branches of government. The same holds true. God just uh, arranges it differently in those different forms. In Psalm 82, God speaks to the magistrate, particularly. In the midst of, in the light of their temptation to use their power and authority to benefit themselves rather than the nation. To serve themselves and their power and their name rather than the poor of the earth. It says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations." Sobering words for the magistrate who misuses his power. But Romans 13 speaks to us as those who are under the magistrate, speaking to some degree without differentiation regarding whether the magistrate is good or bad. It speaks kind of absolutely concerning the magistrate. And in the first five verses, we hear this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Amen. Now, bearing that in mind, our confession speaks to us in Article 36. Now, I'm going to read, you'll notice, in the second paragraph, right at the top of page 89, that there's an asterisk. That asterisk indicates that a change was made. Actually, several changes were made to this article over the years. The version that we now subscribe to includes the first paragraph that we see on page 88, and then the paragraph that's listed in the, the footnotes there. Um, in our Forms and Prayers book, it's, it's not a footnote anymore. It's just the main text. We believe that our gracious God, because of the depravity of mankind, has appointed kings, princes, and magistrates, willing that the world should be governed by certain laws and policies, to the end that the dissoluteness of men might be restrained, and all things carried on among them with good order and decency. For this purpose, he has invested the magistrate's magistracy with the sword for the punishment of evildoers and for the protection of them that do well. And then, from the uh, footnote text and being called in this manner to contribute to the advancement of a society that is pleasing to God, the civil rulers have the task in subjection to the law of God, while completely refraining from every tendency toward exercising absolute authority, and while functioning in the sphere entrusted to them and with the means belonging to them, to remove every obstacle to the preaching of the gospel and to every aspect of divine worship, in order that the word of God may have free course, the kingdom of Jesus Christ may make progress, and every anti-Christian power may be resisted. Amen. And we're going to stop there for today. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, there has always been debate concerning the best, the most proper, the most efficient form of government and concerning how the government ought to deal with the people, and especially the religion and the religious duties of the people. Now, it's instructive that our confession doesn't declare any one form of government to be superior. Some forms of government are immoral, like socialism and communism, which are inherently idolatrous. And other options are arguably more efficient than some. But our forefathers saw wisdom in allowing freedom to each nation, to each land, to discern the specifics of their own governing structure. What they did not leave open for debate, because God's word does not leave it open for debate, is the ultimate role of government, regardless of the form in which it takes. The form which it takes. See, the purpose of those who govern and the job that they are given to do and their reason for existing, these are clearly defined by Scripture. And therefore, if a nation wishes to be blessed, it must strive to ensure that its leaders understand and submit to the calling that God has given to them. Now, providentially, this is one of our election years. Each time we have an opportunity to vote, God gives us the privilege of helping to guide our nation in the way that is right. And woe to us if, like that unfaithful servant of Matthew 25, we take that gift of God and we hide it in the dirt. How unfaithful we would be. But I'm afraid that's what the church often does. If the church in America, I'm not talking everyone who just boldly proclaims they're Christians even though they never darken the door of a church. I'm talking about everyone who truly believes in Christ, truly devotes their heart to the Lord. If the church in America would carefully apply the principles of Scripture in the way they vote and the way that they interact with the magistrate, the government, this nation would be turned upside down. It would change the political landscape. It would send a shockwave down the marble halls of our legislatures and judiciaries. It would shift every major paradigm concerning how our gover- how our nation is governed and led. Perhaps you think, well, that's just a pipe dream. But such dismissals are born of unbelief. Our God is the God who moves mountains in response to faith the size of a grain of mustard seed. He calls His people to trust Him as their king to apply his word to believe his promises and to prepare to glorify him when he responds when he acts as he has promised but the first step for us is to study and to understand what God's purpose is for our government and that's what this first half of article 36 shows us and what it shows us is really quite straightforward it's that God governs society, every society, by His servant, the civil government. That's our theme. God governs society by His servant, the civil government. And if we're to understand what that means, we need to start by recognizing the government as a servant established by God's gracious will. Remember, God is sovereign. Kids, what's that mean? That means He has... The right to rule. He has the right to determine what happens, when it happens, how it happens, everywhere, over every person, in every matter. That runs directly contrary to what we hear in our society today, isn't it? Or doesn't it? Americans united for the separation of church and state say that God has no authority over Congress. The ACLU says God has no rightful place in our courtrooms or in our schools. Revisionist history books say that our founding fathers intentionally kept God out of the government, establishing a wall of separation between church and state. And that's all false. God's absolute authority extends to every government in every place throughout history. We heard it in our call to worship. Daniel 2. The prophet declares, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. That means all power on earth is his, as Jesus said. And no one can reign apart from his sovereign command. In Proverbs 21, verse 1, we're told the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will." That's not just talking about Christian kings. Every king's heart is like a hose in the hand of God. He turns it wherever he wants to. Believing king, unbelieving king, doesn't matter. God is sovereign over them. God was able to call Cyrus, king of Persia, by name long before Cyrus was born and say that Cyrus is the one who would issue the decree that would return his people from the exile that hadn't even happened yet. That's how sovereign our God is over the rulers of this world. We heard it in Romans 13. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That holds true for America. And also Canada, and Mexico, and China, and Russia, and every other nation. And therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. That's not to say that it's always wrong for rulers to be resisted. But resisting a ruler is sinfully rebellious unless it is done by another ruler whom God has raised up whose calling is to resist a ruler who has become tyrannical. And even though as Psalm 2 says, which we helpfully sang a bit ago, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, nonetheless... God is sovereign even over those rulers who reject him, even over those rulers who work against him. And two, those unfaithful rulers, he declares, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. In other words, I will judge you for your rebellion. Now understand well then, God rules over every leader. That includes every form of government. From the kings of ancient Israel, chosen by prophets and ordained by priests, to the emperor and regional governors of the ancient Roman Empire, to the hereditary monarchies and regional serfdoms of the, the Middle Ages, to the constitutional republic in which we live. As I said before, some forms of government work better than others, but all are under God's sovereign control. And he uses every one of them to fulfill his will, his purpose. And that's true at every level of government. God's sovereignty is not limited by the extent of the authority an individual leader possesses. God is king over our president and also over the mayors of Middleville and Lowell. God is king over our congressmen. And also over the commissioners of Kent and Berry County. He is the one who will hold to account our Supreme Court justices. And also our local sheriffs. Every legitimate ruler is raised up by God to serve God. Whether they know God or not. And God has good reason for raising them up. As our confession says, because of the depravity of mankind he did this. Kids, understand this. If man had not sinned, if Adam hadn't committed that sin, we wouldn't need government. Because every person would act as a king, exercising God's authority for good over every sphere that God sets him over, over every part of life, every job that God gives him. We would do it perfectly. We wouldn't need government because we wouldn't do wrong. We wouldn't sin. But because Adam sinned and left us corrupt... We need someone to stop us from sinning. Every once in a while, a new apocalyptic movie comes out. One of these movies where where much of society is, is just brought low by some pandemic or war or what have you. And inevitably, what happens? Lawlessness, anarchy. People are killing people for cans of food. You know what? Those are actually pretty accurate. Because if you get rid of the civil government... There will be very little to restrain the sin of men. And each man will do what is right for himself. And so God established the civil government as God's servant for your good. He is your servant for good by preventing the anarchy that would destroy society itself. He does you good by restraining your neighbor's hatred for you and your inherent hatred for your neighbor. That's a restraint that this world needs and will need as long as sin remains in it. And therefore, the civil government is nothing less than a gift given by God. And that has significant implications. If the civil government is established by God's gracious will as a gift, it has implications for how we deal with the government. We need to recognize that they're a gift. We need to recognize that they're given by God and we need to treat them accordingly. Lord willing, we'll talk more about that next week. Just kind of stick a pin in that. Recognize we need to treat the government even when they don't recognize that they're God's servant as God's servant. That's kind of sticky at times. We need to set that aside and deal with that separately. But at the same time, we need to recognize that this should affect how our rulers serve. If they know that they are called to their office by God himself, they must serve him. Not the people, not their pocketbooks, not their legacy, but they must serve him. That ought to lead you to ask, how can any man serve well who doesn't know him? I mean, apart. part from the knowledge of god a person has no ability to even understand the world in which we live much less to understand how to govern it so how can that authority be rightly used apart from a knowledge of the one who gave it as those who do know and love god surely we have the calling to seek out godly leaders when when moses was instructed concerning how he should raise up leaders for Israel. He was told to, this is in Exodus 18, he was told to seek out men who were able men, who fear God, and who are trustworthy, and who hate a bribe. They fear God, they're trustworthy, they hate a bribe, and they're able, they have ability. Those are the kind of men you would want leading the church, aren't they? And in fact, any one of a lesser character is really unfit to serve as God's representative, as God's servant. And that means that that ought to be your criteria when you vote in August or in November or at any other time. You ought to be asking, brothers and sisters, what is the character of these people who are seeking to rule? Now, of course, we can't know their hearts, but we can see their actions. We can look at their track record, right? So since... Since this opportunity to vote is a responsibility given by God, we ought to do our homework. We ought to find out whether these candidates profess to know God and whether they show that by attending church. And if so, what kind of church do they attend? We ought to ask, do they keep their vows? Or do they not? Do they do what they say they will do? Whether in lesser office that they've held or even in their marriage? Are they... Vow keepers, are they faithful? Are they trustworthy? How do they regard the moral law of our God? Are they in favor of killing infants in the womb? Can such a person ever rightly serve God with such authority? Or do they seek to protect and preserve the life of those who can't speak for themselves? What do they do with constitutional rights? They they wish to take a vow... To protect the rights that God himself has entrusted to us as people. Are they willing to preserve those rights? Or are they willing to chip them away for their own momentary good? But pastor, that's a lot of work. And really, why do you care? What does this have to do with the church? Folks, it has everything to do with the church. God ordained the civil government. And God has taught us what kind of leaders to seek. If we as a church refuse then not only are we being faithless to God by ignoring his word, but we're being faithless to our neighbor who doesn't have access to that word and who needs us to show them, to instruct them, to help them understand what a good leader actually is. So Christians, we are to seek out godly leaders and we are to help our neighbors understand that The government is a servant established by God's will and therefore we need to look to him to find out what kind of leader we should have, what kind of governor we should have. And chief among the reasons God gives us civil governments is the calling to establish and maintain justice. That's the second thing we see here, that leaders, and and I'll freely say these last two points are relatively small, but we need to note them. The government has been given to exercise God's judgment. And that's a twofold calling. On the one hand, it's a calling to restrain the sin that comes naturally to man. On the other hand, a calling to promote good order and decency in society. And those go together, right? You can't have good order and decency in a society where sin goes unchecked, and you can't check or stop sin without good order through law. This is not an insignificant calling. Is calling to promote justice. Ruling well before God necessarily begins with establishing a just system of laws. God asks the rulers of the nations, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? No government can avoid that condemnation without having a standard of law That is truly just. But what is just? Oh, we hear our lawmakers talk about that all the time, right? We need to do what is just. We need to seek justice. We need to make sure that these laws are just. But but what defines justice? Ask them that question and they get a kind of a, a glazed over look in their eyes. What defines justice? What makes one law just and another law unjust? You know what it is for most of them? The polls. What society says, what the majority of the people that I want voting for me tell me is just. But that's a lie. That's, that's a never ceasing target. It never stops to move, or stops moving. The true standard of justice, the standard by which all of our rulers and, and all of mankind will be judged is the moral law written by God himself. If our governors, if our lawmakers, if our judges would be truly just, would truly seek to apply justice, they must rest their laws, they must rest their enforcement of the law on God's law. And if they will not, then they are not fit for office. But if they manage to get godly laws, which by the way were the kind of laws that we had at the start of this nation, That was the standard by which almost all of our early leaders in this nation used to determine what was a a good law and what was a poor law. If we have those good laws, then, then we can apply them fairly. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. Any government that is righteous ought to strive to be described by that verse. Punishing those who are wicked, upholding those who are good. So often that's not the case, right? Should we charge this crime or should we turn a blind eye to it? Well, let's see what the population wants. Let's see what's going to get me the most votes. Should we... Outlaw this thing or should we promote it? Should we tax this thing or should we well it really depends on who donated to my campaign. That's not justice. And anyone who would act on that basis, anyone who would act in that way which is the vast majority of our current politicians does not deserve to sit in that office. But those who truly fear the Lord, those who truly seek to serve the Lord They will exercise the sword. They will exercise the authority that is given to government in a manner that blindly... Kids, do you ever see that statue of justice where she's got a scale in one hand and a sword in the other hand and a blindfold on? That's a picture of justice. The scale, the balance of right and wrong to determine whether punishment is necessary. The sword to exercise that punishment in a manner that is final. And the blindfold to keep justice from respecting person. So that the poor person and the rich are judged alike. That's what a godly government will seek to do. But understand, those who would seek to govern who don't know the Lord, they won't. They can't do that. Look at the... Admonition that God gives in Psalm 82, verse 3. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. That's the mark of a true, godly, just government. Because... The weak, the fatherless, the afflicted, the destitute, the needy, and the weak. They don't have a vote. They don't have a voice. They don't make a fuss. The children, the young ladies that are trafficked for the sinful gratification of anonymous men throughout the world. They don't have a voice. The babies that are slaughtered in the womb. The poor people that are preyed upon by payday loan sharks, they don't have a voice. They don't have an ability to call out and say, we've been forgotten. We've been overlooked. And so one who is not motivated by faith in Christ, one who is not motivated by serving the true God, he's going to ignore them unless he's embarrassed into it. And that is why it is imperative that we not, as Christians, as servants of the true and living God, that we not be satisfied with leaders who are motivated by money, who are motivated by power, who are motivated by their own legacy. For too long, we've been satisfied with that. For too long, we've been okay with that. But the only way out of that is to raise up these young people among us to be better leaders, to raise up these young people among us To be godly leaders. And when we see actual godly leaders running for office to do all in our power to promote them, to bring them forward. Not because we think somehow we're bringing the kingdom of God by doing it, but because God wants his justice, his righteousness displayed through the government that is his servant. We can say a lot more about that, but what we need to remember, folks, is that we have been given the Understanding in a unique manner that the world doesn't possess. We've been given the understanding that just, that government is made to establish, to uphold justice. And so our calling is to get just leaders, leaders who will do justice in office. And by the way, to inform the leaders that are there that one day they will stand before the author of Psalm 82. And they will answer for all that they have done and all that they have declined to do. And we need to do that not in an accusatory manner, not in a way that that allows them to write us off as religious kooks, but lovingly, gently, firmly understanding. You know what that looks like? amazing program in Iowa right now, spreading to, I think it's spread to at least 12 other states where they have ministers and elders who go to the state legislature and who meet with uh, Supreme Court justices and meet with the governor and and their staff and, and they have a simple message. You are a servant of God. God has put you in that office. We know that you will have to answer for every law that you pass, for every decision that you make, for every order that you issue, for every judgment you hand down. You need to know that. And you need to know that we're praying for you. Simple message. Not advocating for any law. Not seeking to condemn them for any decision. Simply informing them. Like the prophet Nathan standing before David. God is sovereign over you and you will answer for how you handle this gift that you've been given. And we're here to pray for you. We're here... To support you and guide you. And it is amazing. At first of course it's all ignored. It's all. looked askance. scants. Ah, these religious people. But it's amazing in just a few years. That the secularists. The total liberals that want nothing to do with God's word. They have a crisis in their life. And guess who they go to see. They get a terrible diagnosis at the doctor's office. And guess who they want to talk to. And pretty soon they get a controversial piece of legislation on their desk and guess who very quietly they want to talk to? That's our call. To be Nathan to the government's David and to show them that they are obligated to bring justice in the name of God and that we're there to support them, that we're there to pray for them, that we're there to guide them. One other matter, very brief. Very brief. Very important. The lie has taken over in our land and sadly in many of our reformed churches that the government is responsible for commandments. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, maybe ten. Period.
1: That's a lie.
0: Romans two or Psalm two. Tells kings and rulers, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Psalm 13 calls the civil ruler God's servant who is meant to serve the Lord in all things. Never does the Bible teach us that the rulers among men are not to restrain the sin of serving false gods. The sin of leading people into idolatry. The sin of swearing falsely and blaspheming God. The sin of breaking the Sabbath or promoting that worship which is false. In fact, quite the opposite is true. God commends those who, like Phineas, show zeal for God by restraining those who would introduce idolatry. He speaks highly of men who, like Nehemiah, protect the people from Sabbath-breaking merchants. God's sovereign rule extends over every nation, whether they serve Him or not, whether they know God or reject Him. Well does Psalm 82 verse 8 confess Him as judge of all the earth and of every nation. And therefore, we need to recognize that this servant is meant to encourage also God's sacred kingdom. Now of course, God's sacred kingdom is not to be identified with any existing nation. You understand that? America is not the kingdom of God. Nor was the Netherlands before it or England before it. Right? The kingdom of God is a kingdom that grows and spreads throughout every land, throughout every nation. And when all of these kingdoms are gone and are nothing, it will continue to exist and to grow and to spread until Christ returns. So the kingdom isn't something we can see on a map, but we can see it. Because every time God's people gather, we gather at the calling of our king. And every time God's people sing, we sing the praises of our king. And every time God's people pray, we pray to the king of kings and the lord of lords. It is this kingdom which every government among men is called to encourage and to promote. So the good and righteous government will do all that it can to protect and to promote as our Confession tells us the kingdom of God. When Romans 13, verse 4, hear this, when Romans 13, verse 4, calls the government God's servant for your good, it's talking in the age of the Roman Empire. Likely when Nero was on the throne, he was not a friend to the church. And yet the apostle says he is God's servant for your good. He's not talking, he's not using your as a generic. Pronoun that refers to all mankind. He's talking to the church. He's talking to the people of God. He's saying that that servant is meant for your good people of God. Necessarily that means defending the church from those who would afflict it. That government is wicked which turns a blind eye to the affliction of the church. And so too that government which which fails to refrain. Those who would slander and intimidate God's people. The righteous government is called to restrain also religion that is false. There's a myth in America that the government is, is, has no business restraining any religion. That's a lie. That's a lie. If it is to restrain evil truly, it must restrain some religion. It must silence that religion which would promote violence. It must Censure that religion which would advance injustice and evil. And it has in the past, by the way. It has, at times, restrained Islam in its promotion of holy war. It has, at times, restrained Mormonism in its promotion of polygamy. So this idea that the government is never to restrain false religion is is a lie that is demonstrably historically false. False. And that same government will promote religion that is true. Now that's not to say that the government should ever require people to attend church. We can't convert people by commanding them by law. But rulers can and should create a climate that encourages men to seek the true God. How do they do that? How about by vigorously protecting the worship of God and the preaching of His church? How about by urging the nation to pray to God and seek His blessing upon our land? How about by ensuring that our law rests on God's law as the one standard of true justice? How about by confessing publicly that all the good that we possess came from the Lord? The secularists in our nation today would scream and cry at that idea, but you know what? Founding fathers for the first hundred years of this nation did exactly that. And they and we were blessed for it. The obligation, brothers and sisters, is ours. We who know and who trust the Lord have the obligation to raise up godly leaders, to refuse to be content with the worldly and ungodly leaders who now rule, and to instruct our children and our children's children and our neighbors and our neighbors' children in what is good, what is just, what is the role of government and what is not. It is our calling to debunk the myths that are currently muzzling the nation. The myth that there is such a thing as